1973, if you can remember that far back, if you're old enough. Not long after leaving his position as White House Chief Counsel, Charles Colson visited his friend, Tom Phillips. And it was during this time when the whole white water, or white, white water, Watergate scandal was exploding in the press. And Colson was baffled and shocked as he talked to his friend, Tom Phillips, because Phillips explained that he had accepted Jesus Christ. But he saw that Tom was at peace, and Colson says he wasn't at peace. And when Colson left his friend's house, the former White House hatchet man was crying so hard he couldn't get his keys into the ignition. He writes in his book, Loving God, That night I was confronted with my own sin, not just Watergate's dirty tricks, but the sin deep within me, the hidden evil that lives in every human heart. It was painful and I could not escape. I cried out to God and find myself, found myself drawn irresistibly into his waiting arms. That was the night I gave my life to Jesus Christ and began the greatest adventure of my life. That story has been told hundreds of times. I've told it several times. We love to hear those kinds of testimonies, but that's not the end of the story. You see, far too many people settle for that part of this story. They settle for it in their own lives. They settle for it in their church lives together, but not Charles Colson. Not only was the White House hatchet man willing to repent and cry in 1973, he was willing several years later to repent of an, what he called an inadequate view of God. It was during a period of spiritual dryness, he said. And a friend suggested to him that he watch a videotape lecture series by R.C. Sproul on the holiness of God. And here's what Coulson writes about that. All I knew about Sproul was that he was a theologian, so I wasn't enthusiastic. After all, I reasoned, theology was for people who had time to study, locked in ivory towers far from the battlefield of human need. However, my, at my friend's urging, I finally agreed to watch Sproul's series. By the end of the sixth lecture, I was on my knees, deep in prayer, in awe of God's absolute holiness. It was a life-changing experience as I gained a completely new understanding of the holy God I believe in and worship. My spiritual drought ended, but this taste for the majesty of God only made me thirst for more. In 1973, Colson had seen enough of God and of himself to know his desperate need of God and had been driven, as he said, irresistibly into God's arms. But then, several years later, something else wonderful happened. A theologian spoke on the holiness of God, and Charles Colson says that he fell to his knees and gained a completely new understanding of the holy God, and from that point on, he says he had a taste for the majesty of God. We could ask that question this morning, have you seen enough of God's holiness that you have an insatiable taste for his majesty? If not, it's my hope as we go through this in Isaiah chapter 1, it's what we see from God's word this morning and over the next couple of weeks, you're going to see something that I believe will definitely whet your appetite to fuel your desire 
for God's glory. In the book of Acts, we see that same story lived out over and over again. Our touchstone passage for this is Acts chapter 2, verse 20. At Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved. Then according to verse 46, they continued day by day in the temple praising God. And Acts chapter 2, verse 43 says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Everyone was filled with the awe of God. The marvelous things that he did, who God is, that he is God and he is with us. Every day was characterized by a spirit of anticipation of what God was going to do and praising him. People in those days, they couldn't hardly wait to get up in the morning to see what God was going to do today. They couldn't hardly wait to go to the temple to praise God, to, to worship him. They had an insatiable taste for the majesty of God. These people were, were people whose lives had been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there was a whole new sense of community dynamic, a dynamic of worship, of joy, of praise, even amidst the worst of circumstances because they were persecuted. They did have trials, but yet they had this awe of God. During our time in God's Word over the last couple of weeks, we've been thinking about what it means to be led by the Holy Spirit in worship, led by the Holy Spirit of God. You remember how we define what it means to be Spirit-led, and I didn't put it in the bulletin this time, to be a Spirit-filled church? To be led by the Spirit of God means to be consciously aware of being in God's presence, listening to His voice, and responding accordingly. Being in God's presence, listening to his voice, and responding accordingly. That's what especially makes a church great. It, what's, it makes us effective in our community. It, it makes us dynamic because we are filled with all because our emphasis is on worshiping and praising God. So please turn once again to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 1, page 839. Isaiah chapter 6, the first verse. In the example of Isaiah here, of Isaiah's experience of God, when Isaiah saw the Lord, we're going to see that definition worked out. We're going to see it illustrated, what it means to be led by the Spirit of God in worship. Verses 1 through 4 of Isaiah chapter 6 speak of the presence of God in worship. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, exalted, Verses 5 through 7 tell us of being transformed in his presence. My sin was forgiven, says Isaiah. And then verse 8 gives us Isaiah's response to God's voice. Here I am I, send, send me. So it well fits our definition of what it means to be led by the Spirit of God. Isaiah was consciously aware of being in God's presence where he was cleansed and changed. He listened to God's voice and responded accordingly. So in Isaiah chapter 6, we have a really neat example of what it means to know and to experience God, to be led by his, his Spirit. And we're only going to look at the first point of all of that this morning. In verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 6, it begins, In the year of King Uzziah's death. That's where we're going to stop for now. The year of King Uzziah's death. There was a national crisis. The king had died. That meant there's going to be a lot of turmoil, 
Things were going to change, presumably for the worst. Now Isaiah had served the king and was a prophet. Now Isaiah wasn't just any prophet. Many people feel like Isaiah was the greatest prophet of Israel. Isaiah was a man who was a statesman. He spoke to God or spoke for God to common people. He also spoke to kings. He was known in the palace. He was a consultant to the monarchs. Over his lifetime, Isaiah prophesied during the reign of four kings. He prophesied during a time of great crisis. There was a time of great chaos. There was a time of moral decadence. It was a time when God's people were turning their backs on God. In fact, during the time of Isaiah's prophecy, the northern kingdom, Israel, was utterly destroyed by the Assyrian invaders. And the southern kingdom, Judah, was attacked by Assyria. These were unstable times, difficult times, and Isaiah had a very strategic ministry. In the midst of these days of Isaiah, there came along a king in Judah who, compared to the other kings, was a man of some influence, some goodness, some excellence. His name was Uzziah, who was mentioned here in the first verse. Isaiah reigned, or Uzziah reigned for a long time. He reigned for 52 years on the throne. And he was generally a successful king, and he brought benefits to the people. Uzziah had become king when he was just 16 years old. Can you imagine? Then he reigned for 52 years. And at first, Isaiah continued to seek the Lord God. And God used Uzziah to prosper the nation because he sought the Lord. In battle, with an army of over 300,000 soldiers, Uzziah defeated the Philistines. He defeated the Amorites. He extended the kingdom of Israel clear to the borders of, of Egypt. The book of Second Chronicles tells us that Uzziah hewed many cisterns, which were used to, to water the livestock, and the land flourished. There were vine dressers. There were fertile fields. The day was compared to and considered to be second only to the golden age under Solomon. People were secure. They were safe in their homes. They were profitable in their businesses and then their, their farms. But in his later years, pride filled Uzziah's heart, and he no longer sought the Lord. <clears throat> he acted corruptly. He acted unfaithful to the Lord his God. He entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. It was an act of worship that God had reserved for the priest. When the priest tried to stop Uzziah, he became enraged. He pitched a fit, as we would say today. He forced the issue, and when he reached out the censer to light the incense, God struck him with leprosy up his arm and onto his body. And he was a leper until the day he died, and he had to live in a house for lepers, and he was cut off from the house of the Lord. When Uzziah died, there was a certain feeling of panic that began to set in amongst the people. What are we going to do now? Uzziah is dead. The people became fearful. In fact, if you think of 52-year reign in those days with the lifespan and those kind of things, Uzziah was the only king that most people had ever known. Five years before Uzziah had died, 
Tilgath-Pileser, the ambitious warrior king of Assyria, suddenly appeared on the horizon in the Near East. And this Assyrian king had the grand design to conquer all the kingdoms around the Euphrates and the Nile and to establish in their place the great Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were known for their cruelty, for their brutality. They not only exiled people and took the best into captivity like the Babylons later did, they totally wiped them out, subjugated everybody. It was the Assyrians who invented that thing that we know as crucifixion the most brutal and painful death imaginable. And right in the middle of this evil design stood the kingdoms of Israel and Judah who were already tottering on the brink of doom, not only because of Tilgath-Pilazar, but because of the spiritual and moral rot that was internal in the nation. Not only were the feared enemies of the nation rattling their sabers, on their borders, the, de- the nation was decaying morally and spiritually from within. Spiritually, they were just going through the motions of worship. It was not from their heart. It was mechanical. It was superficial. There was no sense whatsoever of the awesomeness of God or the fear of the Lord. Their worship fulfilled the letter of the law. They went to the right place at the right time and did the right thing, like we've been talking in Sunday school class these days. But it was superficial. They were just going through their motions. Their hearts were not in it. They felt no awe of God. So keep your finger in Isaiah chapter 6 for a moment and turn over to the first chapter of Isaiah. Verse 11 of the first chapter of Isaiah. Concerning their spiritless, mechanized religion, God had said to them through the prophet Isaiah, in verse 11 of chapter 1 of Isaiah, he said, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. It's very similar to what God would say through the prophet Malachi 400 years from then. Someone just shut the doors. Don't do that anymore. That they would just stop burning useless fire on the altar. And the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah in verse 14, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feast. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. In Malachi, the people said of their worship, my how tiresome it is. We've got to go down to that place and do that thing all over again. That's what happens when God's people lose the feeling and the sense of awe of the worship of God. That's how God's people feel about it. How does God feel about it? Malachi said, they have wearied the Lord with their words. God's tired of it. And Isaiah here says, your worship has become a burden to me. I'm tired of carrying it. What an incredible thing for God to say. The people are tired of it. God's tired of it. The Lord said that their worship was totally unacceptable. I will not accept an offering from you, says the Lord. It's 
It's unacceptable worship. Does this sound begin to sound a little familiar in our time, in our culture today, in the United States of America? A nation who at one time had sought God, a nation who loved God and worshipped God, and now turned its back on the Lord God? One strike against America. A nation which was threatened by many enemies? Strike two. A nation that was decaying from within, morally and spiritually? Strike three. A nation whose heart is far from God and whose worship is just going through the motions. A.W. Tozier spoke of a similar calamity of worship in our country in his day, and amazingly, he wrote this over 60 years ago. Tozier wrote in his book, The Pursuit of God, A generation of Christians reared among push buttons and automatic machines is impatient of slower and less direct methods of reaching their goals. We've been trying to apply machine age methods to our relation with God. We read our chapter, have our short devotions, and rush away, hoping to make up for our deep inward bankruptcy by attending another gospel meeting or listening to another thrilling story told by a religious adventurer lately returned from afar. The tragic results of the Spirit are all about us. Shallow lives, hollow religious philosophies, the preponderance of the element of fun in gospel meetings, the glorification of men, trust in religious externalities, quasi-religious fellowships, salesmanship methods, the mistaking of dynamic personality for the power of the Spirit. These and such as these are the symptoms of an evil disease, a deep and serious malady of the soul. And then Tozier adds in his book on the deeper life, in my opinion, the greatest need of the moment is that light-hearted, superficial religionists be struck down with a vision of God, high and lifted up in his train filling the temple. The holy art of worship seems to have passed away like the Shekinah glory from the tabernacle. As a result, we are left to our own devices and forced to make up for our lack of spontaneous worship by bringing in countless cheap and tawdry activities to hold the attention of church people. In Isaiah's day, King Uzziah had been able to stem the tide of the great Assyrian Empire, as well as, in some regard, the spiritual decay from within the kingdom. But instead of turning to God, as Isaiah had told them to do, the people were caught up in a frenzy of self-indulgence and, and dissipation and moral decadence. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 22, in the 12th verse, Isaiah chapter 22, verse 12, we see that the people were caught up in, in all of this. And so in verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 22, Therefore in that day the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head, to wearing sackcloth. Instead there's gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking the wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. Instead of turning around to crying and mourning, the people are saying, well, let's really live this up. We may not have tomorrow. Let's just really go for it. That's how it was when Uzziah died. The leader was dead. And among all the God-fearing Jews who may have sought the face of God during that horrible time in their nation was the prophet Isaiah. 
And he goes to the temple. Let's pick it up there again in verse 1 of chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. Now, this is an incredible statement. I want to show you something about the situation. You'll notice the word Lord there. I saw the Lord. In the King James and New American Standard, and those that make a certain distinction, you'll notice the word Lord there is capital L, little O-R-D. Lord. Capital L, then three smaller case letters. This is reflective in these particular translations of the Hebrew word Adonai. Remember that word? Adonai, Adonai. If it's just Lord, capital L, small letters, it's, it's the translation of Adonai. Now when you see the word Lord, and it may not be in your translation this way, but it's capital L and then capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, this is reflective. We see that down in verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This is a translation of just four letters in the Hebrew, which are Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. Sometimes it's pronounced. But the Jews considered Y-H-W-H, it's called the tetragrammaton. Tetra means four, grammaton means writing. It means four letters. The Jews, even to this day, believe the name of God to be too holy to even speak, to, to pronounce. And so when they're reading scripture, they'll come across Lord, which is Adonai. But when they come across the Tetragrammaton, they will still speak Adonai. Now, no one really knows how Yahweh or the Tetragrammaton is, is pronounced. And, and interestingly enough, in the Middle Ages, not knowing how it was pronounced, uh, Peter Abelard took the vowels from Adonai and put the vowels into Yahweh and came up with the word Yehovah. Jehovah. That's where we get the name of God as Jehovah. Yahweh has reference to the essential nature of God. I am that I am. He told Moses. It's God's essential being. Adonai has reference to God's sovereignty. So with that in mind, we get a better understanding of verse 1. In the year that we lost our human king, I saw the real king. I saw Adonai, the sovereign Lord. There can never be much panic that sits in when God is still on his throne. It may have looked to Isaiah that the whole thing was falling apart. It's all a real mess. It's a total meltdown. Economically, spiritually, morally, nationally, politically, it's a complete meltdown in the nation in every way possible. A favorite phrase around our house is these days, I just can't believe what's happening to our country. How many of you have said that? We may say that around our house several times a day. depends on how much the news is, is on. Adonai is a Title meaning the sovereign one. The human king was dead, but history does not depend upon human kings. But it depends upon the absolute monarchy, the supreme lord, Adonai himself. 
his kingship is infinitely superior to that of Uzziah or anybody else. I like the way that John Piper said it a few years ago. He says, first, God is alive. Uzziah is dead, but God lives on. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Psalm 90, verse 2. God was the living king when this universe banged into existence. He was the living God when Socrates drank his poison. He was the living God when William Bradford governed Plymouth Colony. He was the living God in 1966 when Thomas Altizer proclaimed him dead and Time Magazine put it on the cover. And he will be living 10 trillion ages from now when all the puny pot shots against his reality will have sunk into oblivion like BBs at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He continues, there's not a single head of state in all the world that will be there in 50 years. Unless you're Queen Elizabeth 60 some years ago. <laughs> Who would have thought? But he says the turnover on world leadership is 100%. In a brief 110 years, this planet will be populated by 10 billion brand new people. And all 6 billion of us alive today will have vanished off the earth like Uzziah, but not God. He never had a beginning and therefore depends on nothing for his existence. He always has been and always will be alive. And so God, in the midst of the crisis, appeared to let Isaiah and let the people know that all is not lost. God makes a personal appearance and Isaiah sees him. And he sees him sitting on the throne. It's great to know that God hasn't abdicated. And when the world seems to fall apart and everything seems to be going to pieces, God is still on his throne. Exalted, it says, high and lifted up. And his robe filled the temple. The great picture of his majesty and his exaltation, his glory and his power. Now I want you to write a little note in the margin of your Bible next to Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. I want you to write down John chapter 12 verse 41. John 12 41. Because you might be wondering, well, what does this all have to do with me? I've never seen the Lord that way, seated on his, his throne. I have never seen him lifted up like that. Now, Isaiah was a great prophet. We tend to think, I, I can never have an experience of God like that. Isaiah was a great prophet, and, and Moses was a great prophet who spoke to him face to face, and they had those moments of experiencing God's glory, and of course, David, the psalmist, he wrote all that good stuff and had that special relationship with God. That's why I want you to write John 1241 in the margin of your Bible because this is where the experience that Isaiah had with God intersects our own experience. So please turn over to John's Gospel, chapter 12, the 12th chapter of John's Gospel at verse 38. 38, John chapter 12, verse 38, and we'll work up to verse 41, page 1324. 12th chapter of John, the 38th verse. In John chapter 12, Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples and he's speaking of his impending death, which would be the next day. 
And even though, well, he'll be in the upper room in chapter 13, but even, even though he had done many miracles among the people, the people were still not believing in him. And John records that at this point that Jesus went and hid himself from them. And then the next event will be in the upper room in, in Jerusalem. In fact, this is the point where Jesus ended his public ministry. He no longer walked among the people. Having witnessed the miracles of Jesus for three years or so, having heard him teach, having gained all the information necessary to come to him in faith, they still willingly rejected him. Despite the massive and incontrovertible evidence, the Jewish people had concluded that Jesus was not the Messiah and he should be executed as an imposter. John records that this was to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah. And that's where we pick it up in verse 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has, not belie who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts so that they would not see him with their eyes and perceive them him with their heart and be converted and I heal them. It's much like the Pharaoh. He hardened his own heart, the scripture says. He hardened his heart until it came to the point that God hardened his heart. God hardened their hearts so they could not believe. And one way to put it is they were too far gone. But all is not lost. Out of Israel's rejection of Christ, God brought good. In his sovereign grace, God has brought good out of that rejection. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 11, verse 11, that by Israel's transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now think about that. Since they rejected God, since they could not believe, Israel rejected their Messiah, God's sovereign plans could not be thwarted by anything that they did. It appeared that by their rejection of Christ, all of God's plan for Israel and for salvation to be thwarted. But remember, God is still on the throne. God is still in control. The Lord is still sitting on the throne. He's high and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. So that's where we pick it up in verse 41 of John chapter 12. And that's why I wanted you to write it back in the margin of your Bible back in Isaiah chapter 6. And if you want to write Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 next to 41, then you're cross-reference will be complete. Now look what Isaiah says. He's been talking about Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Whose glory did Isaiah see? He saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah spoke of the Lord Jesus. He saw his glory. I, John 12, 41 says, Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. To put it another way, he saw Jesus Christ sitting on the throne, high and exalted and lifted up. In other words, John tells us that the appearance of Jesus Christ to Isaiah in the Old Testament, let me throw a couple of big words at you, was a pre-incarnate Christophany. 
pre-incarnate. What do we mean by pre-incarnate? Before Jesus came, became a man, and was born of a virgin and came into this world. The incarnation of Christ, we call it. Remember, Jesus was in the beginning with, with God. He has been from everlasting to everlasting. So he was alive in the Old Testament, so it's pre-incarnate. And then there's that big word Christophany, which means an appearance of Christ. It's a pre-incarnate Christophany. Isaiah saw the Lord Jesus sitting on the throne. He saw Jesus. And what does the Lord Jesus promise to every believer in him? Now we're still in the upper room. We're in the upper room with the disciples. Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room that he was going away. And where he was going, they could not come. The disciples panicked. For three, three and a half years, they'd been totally dependent upon Jesus. In fact, he built dependency into them. He said, what? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now he says, I'm going away and you can't come. And like the people of Judah who couldn't imagine what they were going to do without Uzziah, their king, how could they even survive? The disciples couldn't imagine what they were going to do without Jesus physically being with them. What are they going to do? Without Jesus. Turn over a few more pages in John's Gospel to the 14th chapter of John's Gospel. To the promise of Jesus at verse 16. I think we've read this two or three times in the last month or so. Several times at least in the last few weeks. John chapter 14 verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot perceive because it does not know him, see him, or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and I will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will what? See me. Because I live, you also live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose or manifest myself to him. You will see me, says Jesus. I, not, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. You will perceive me. You will know me. You will see me. And I will make myself known to you. Do you know that through the Holy Spirit, we have the same privilege afforded to Isaiah in the Old Testament, to Moses, to David? Because Jesus reveals himself to us through his Holy Spirit. He makes himself real. He makes himself known. We experience the actual presence of God. We see the Lord. We see the train of his robe filling the temple with glory. The temple. With the word temple, we see another one of the roles of the Holy Spirit in, in worship. Not only is worship in the immediate presence of God, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit also defined the sanctuary of God. The Holy Spirit defines where God sets his throne. The location on the earth where God set his throne, it's the designated center of the Lord's community, 
and his rule. It's the place of the throne of God, the sanctuary. Now, during Israel's time, the term sanctuary applied to both the tabernacle, the tent structure in the wilderness, and then the temple, the temple, the stone structure. They both served as God's royal palace, as it were, the place where God lived among his people, the center of his community, this place of his sovereign rule. The holy place in the temple is called the throne room, where the Ark of the Covenant is. The Ark of the Covenant was his throne where God sat with all his glory. It was the place of the overwhelming and consuming presence of the Holy God. And here is the incredible thing for us today. Since the Holy Spirit indwells us as believers today, the Apostle Paul applies that concept of temple where God lives, where God rules to each one of us. He says, do you not know that you are a temple of the living God? Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. And he continues quoting the Old Testament and applying it to believers. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Where is God's throne room today? It is here. Do you not know that you all are temple of the living God? The Spirit of God indwells you. When we come into this place, you know, there's always that debate architecturally. Do we call this the sanctuary? Well, they had sanctuaries in the Old Testament, and God doesn't dwell in a place not made with hands anymore and those kind of things. Or do we call it a worship center? That's popular today. Well, I do know this. When all y'all come in here on Sunday morning... This is the sanctuary. This is the throne room of the living God. The Holy Spirit's presence in us defines the boundaries of the true sanctuary of God and defines the worshiping committee or community. Psalm 22.3 says, Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of of Israel. We often pray, paraphrase that. God inhabits the praises of his people. The Holy Spirit defines the sanctuary of God. He makes himself real to his people. We experience the actual presence of the living God. We see the Lord. Unless you want me to go on for another half hour or an hour, we're going to have to leave it <laughs> right there today as we get into some really good stuff in Isaiah chapter 6. Shall we pray? Our Father God, I know that we're just starting to get a sense, a renewed sense of what it means to be in your presence. Lord, I pray that you would make yourself real to us even in the remaining moments that we have during this hour. And Father, that as we go through our, our, our daily schedules and our daily tasks and other things this next week, Lord, that that maybe even in the quietness of a moment or a sense where we are giving thought to these matters, Lord, that once again you would make yourself real 
to us. When we hear the bad things on the news and the, the horrible situation and mess that the world and our country is in, Father, I pray that you would show us your glory. Make yourself real to us. Help us to fully understand what it means that you are sitting on your throne. And whoever these other politicians are, they're not. <laughs> it's not dependent upon them, Lord. But I do pray, Father, that, uh, that these people who are running for office and trying to fill these positions, Lord, that you somehow through your Holy Spirit would get through to them. And Father, show them their need for Jesus Christ as their Savior. And Father, show them their need to see you high and lifted up, exalted in the train of your robe, filling the temple. And for this we pray in Jesus' name.